Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. Yasha Levine will tell us about the many continuities between Nazi collaborators in Ukraine during World War II and today's proxy war against Russia. And Lizzie O'Shea will review the history of techno-utopianism and help us think about a renovated digital commons inspired by the Paris Commune. Before that, I want to say a few words about the robot revolution, a topic that comes up in my interview with Lizzie O'Shea. I'm a skeptic. By that, I don't mean to argue that IT and AI and all the other abbreviations and acronyms aren't changing our world profoundly. They are. Tech affects everything. Work, play, love, politics, art, all of it. But the maximalist version, where robots equipped with AI are going to replace human workers, that's another story. No doubt they will replace some, but not all. Back in 1987, ancient history and tech time, the economist Robert Solo observed, you can see the computer age everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. That rose to the level of a cliché, but it was true. Productivity, measured as the dollar value of the output per hour of work adjusted for inflation, fell below its long-term average in the mid-1970s, one of the many signs of the end of the post-World War II golden age, and would stay there for 20 years. Then around 1995, productivity accelerated with the commercialization of the internet and the dot-com boom. Solo's quip was retired, and the dawn of a new era was pronounced. But that new era lasted only about 10 years. Productivity fell back into a slump, reaching all-time lows from 2014 to 2016. It's picked up some since, but trend productivity growth is at levels comparable to the productivity slump in the late 1970s, 1980s, and early 1990s. So we're back in the land of Solo's quip. Robots aren't visible in the productivity stats. Here's another way to look at it. Historically, it took just over 2% of GDP growth to generate a 1% increase in employment in the U.S. For most of the last decade, employment growth has outstripped that historical norm. Lately, the U.S. economy has added almost 40,000 jobs a month, more than GDP growth alone would suggest. That compares to an average gain lately of about 200,000 a month. In other words, one out of every five jobs being produced in the U.S. today wouldn't be there if normal relationships between growth and employment were still holding sway. GDP growth, which has been slow by historical standards, has also been producing larger declines in unemployment than you'd expect if old relationships were still in effect. If the robots were moving in, you'd expect just the opposite. Job growth badly lagging economic growth, unemployment stickier than it has been. But those things just are not happening. Maybe they will, though we've heard panicked tales of disappearing human workers since the onset of capitalism. Cries of alarm like the robots are coming undermine the confidence of the working class and make people more grateful for whatever crap the system feeds them than they should be. Economic life is hard enough without promoting mechanical competitors. And now to Ukraine. I mostly avoided the impeachment melodrama, but in the gym I happened to catch Adam Schiff in one of his apparently regular anti-Russian tirades. One of Trump's principal sins, not caging kids or inciting Nazis or cutting food stamps, was momentarily slowing arms aid to Ukraine to fight our proxy war against Russia. We fight them there, declared Schiff, so we don't have to fight them here. It's news to me that we have to fight them anywhere, but as party leader Nancy Pelosi says, all roads lead to Putin. Fortunately, the journalist Yasha Levine has been doing an email series via Substack, Immigrants as a Weapon, in which he reviews the history of U.S. use of immigrants and, relatedly, nationalism as a weapon. It was a classic technique of the Cold War, joining anti-communist exiles from places like the Ukraine and the Baltic republics to internal dissidents in a campaign to undermine the USSR. Many of those networks drew on World War II Nazi collaborators. The relationship continues to this day. There's no USSR anymore, but Russia must be fought with similar ardor. A leading character in the Ukraine drama is Christia Freeland, the foreign minister of Canada and granddaughter of a notorious Ukrainian Nazi propagandist. Here's Yasha Levine, whose book Surveillance Valley looks at the close alliance of tech and the national security state with more. Who knew that Canada was such a uh, nest of, uh, of Ukrainian Nazis? Uh, Christia Freeland has uh, quite a story, right? Yeah, yeah, she's got some uh, 
a few um, unapologetic Nazi collaborator skeletons in her closet for sure. So her grandfather to start with? Christia Freeland's grandfather, a maternal grandfather, was a Nazi collaborator and a Nazi propagandist. He ran a newspaper in Krakow, in, in Nazi-occupied Krakow. It was just a Nazi uh, propaganda organ targeting the Ukrainian population. And in it, he you know, printed uh, Adolf Hitler's speeches. He ran editorials talking about kike capitalism and, and, and Judeo-Bolshevism and uh, ran a campaign to whip up hatred against uh, the Jewish population uh, in, in Poland and Ukraine, against the Polish population, against sort of the Russian-Mongol threat to Western Christian civilization. I mean, it was just a straight-up propaganda organ. You said Judeo-Bolshevism. The two things were very tightly linked in Nazi minds, as they are still today, right? Yeah, no, it, both capitalism actually and Bolshevism were tightly linked to Jews uh, in the Nazi mind. Uh, and yes, the so Judeo-Bolshevism was seen as um, the same thing. I mean, Judaism and Bolshevism came from the same source. I mean, Bolshevism was seen as the method or the technology that, that, that the Jewish race uh, deployed against the world in order to control it and to enslave it, uh, and particularly to enslave the German people. But but this originated actually uh, before the, even the Nazis, but it originated in, in, in Tsarist Russia and, and among the, the white Russian community. Um, it was a theory that was not... Uh, isolated to Nazi Germany, but they took it to an art form and they, of course, industrialized the production of this conspiracy theory in the run-up to the Holocaust and uh, during the war. And so it spread through Europe and became really powerful and, um, and uh, widely accepted. And so uh, Christian Freeland's uh, grandfather worked for an organ that spread that kind of stuff, that spread that kind of garbage. And after the war, as the, the Red Army advanced into Ukraine and then into Poland, he retreated with, with, the, with the Nazis um, and ended up in a displaced persons camp in uh, Germany uh, that was run by probably the UN uh, at the time. And then after a couple of years there, uh, he, his family ended up in Canada, where he uh, continued to be a, a newspaper editor of a Ukrainian language newspaper and uh, lived out a, a kind of happy, uh, fulfilling life as a good Canadian citizen. Well, now, was he publishing Nazi rants or had he cleaned up his act? I don't think he was publishing Nazi rants. I think he was publishing a kind of a whitewashed version of the Ukrainian nationalist history. Uh, uh, and uh, in fact, Christy Freeland got her start as a journalist because Christy Freeland, her, she got her professional start being a journalist. That was kind of, she got into politics where she worked for the Financial Times. She worked, worked as a stringer in, in Ukraine and then Sort of moved up into, into a role of a professional journalist. She got her start in journalism writing for her grandfather's uh, Ukrainian uh, newspaper when she was, uh, when she was young, younger. And she has nothing but good things to say about him. Yeah, well, she's completely distorted and, and hidden uh, this about her grandfather. She's known about his Nazi past, but she has completely uh, whitewashed it and actually spun his tale as, and made him into a victim of Nazi Germany and a victim of both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. So in her telling of, of the family history, he's a political refugee, uh, and um, he kind of helped inform her view of the evils of the Soviet Union. Thanks to him, her political views of sort of the Russian threat and the Russian menace to global stability and to global peace was formed. So she is completely uh, denied that he has uh, any kind of Nazi... Uh, Past. And in fact, when this came out a few years ago and grew into a scandal, 2017, um, she blamed it all on, on Russian disinformation and on Russian propaganda. So she is completely, you know, even though there's copious evidence of the fact that he was the editor-in-chief of this newspaper and published all this stuff and was unrepentant about it, even when he came back to Canada, um, she continues to deny it and continues to uh, deflect uh, the accusations against her. I suppose some people would say, oh, so well, it was a long time ago. You know, he's been dead for a while. Why should we care? Should she be responsible for the sins of her, of her grandfather? No, she shouldn't be responsible for the Nazi sins of her grandfather. The problem is that she's, she's denied his Nazi past um, and she has tried to uh, position him as, as, a, as, a, as a victim of Nazi aggression, aggression. So it's important that she's obfuscating this very, very troubling aspect of her family history. She doesn't need to um, apologize for him, but just to even accept it would be, to, would be a good start. 
But the reason she doesn't even accept it or want to talk about it is because, in a way, she's continuing uh, her grandfather's legacy. And her grandfather, as a Ukrainian nationalist, as a Ukrainian fascist, his prime enemy was uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, and, and, and socialism and communism, right? And she has continued his legacy, his Ukrainian nationalist legacy, uh, in her role as, a, as Canada's uh, foreign minister. And she has continued Canada's policy of using Ukraine as a territory for a kind of proxy war against Russia. Um, she has sent arms to Ukraine and sold arms to Ukraine. And she uh, has uh, maintained um, a permanent military presence in Ukraine um, with Canadian military members training Ukrainian soldiers, including uh, members of really problematic neo-Nazi division uh, called the Azov Battalion. So there's a c continuation between her grandfather's politics and Christia Freeland's politics today. So that's why the Nazi uh, history is important, not just because we can, you know, shame her for, for what her grandfather did. Now, I want to get back to the um, proxy war business, the proxy war against Russia uh, in a moment. But she also has another relative uh, who uh, helped complete the work of decollectivizing uh, the Ukrainian economy, right? Yeah. Look, I mean, she's, she's in a way the second generation uh, Canadian and Ukrainian nationalists continuing the work that her grandfather started or the, the work that her grandfather couldn't complete under the Nazis. Her mother and her uncle, um, sort of the, the, the son and daughter of her grandfather, uh, both after the collapse of the Soviet Union, both of them became very active in Ukrainian politics. And um, uh, her, her mother, I believe, had a hand in shaping uh, Ukraine's constitution, uh, while her uncle uh, worked for USAID. He worked for USAID on a program that privatized collective farms and privatized collectivized land in Ukraine. And today he's actually still in Ukraine and he's involved in uh, domestic politics in Ukraine, her uncle. And he is a, a, a vocal um, um, proponent of continuing the war against sort of Eastern Ukraine. And he's a, a vocal proponent of uh, not signing a peace deal with Russia. Uh, and he believes that any peace deal with Russia is a capitulation to Putin. Um, so she has a whole family that's very politically involved in Ukrainian politics. Uh, and, and, and so that's why the, the Nazi past is interesting, because you can see a direct connection, a chain, a chain between uh, the grandfather and his politics and the politics of his children and the politics even of, of his grandchildren. I'm speaking with the journalist Yasha Levine. Uh, and now the decollectivization of Ukraine has not delivered the country into uh, great uh, um, riches now, right? It's not a prosperous uh, realm. Um, no, Ukraine is today the poorest country in Europe. Um, people can barely survive there. It is a country that is completely racked by depression, economic depression. To be honest, uh, I, I mean, it, what, what it has happened is Ukraine is becoming more and more of a, Ukraine's famous fertile black soil. Um, has sort of always been a coveted resource for, for European powers. And um, it's essentially privatized the land and made it open for foreign investment uh, by agribusinesses and things like that. So I don't think it's brought riches to Ukraine at all. It's, just, it's, it's only helped to facilitate the plunder of its resources and the, the control of those resources in the hands of a, of a of uh, big corporations and um, and local oligarchs. The U.S. and uh, its allies have been using Ukraine uh, against Russia, right? Like, could you describe what use uh, the uh, Ukraine is to uh, this, you know, who is it, uh, Schiff was saying recently, that we, we, we need to fight them there so we don't have to fight the Russians here. Like, what, what, what's, that, uh, what's that strategy all about? Yeah, the strategy is not clear what the strategy is, to be honest. I mean, the strategy is to... Is this kind of zombie strategy that's been on autopilot that sees Russia as this enemy, as this mortal enemy of democracy. And so if you don't contain Russia uh, where Russia is, and if you don't aggressively push up against it, right, that somehow Russia is going to burst out like some kind of virus and it's going to take over the world, right? I mean, that's, that's the doctrine. Uh, that's the doctrine that we heard repeated over and over and over again during the impeachment hearings that you have to fight the Russians in Russia or near Russia, right? And have to kill Russians there so that we don't have to kill them 
over here and over here, meaning in America. And so this, this, this insane uh, new conservative uh, worldview is taken for granted in Washington, D.C. It's taken for granted by everybody. It's not examined. It's not questioned. It's not debated. But that's that that's the idea is that you have to use Ukraine as this base of operations, as this forward operating base in this proxy war against Russia. And the proxy war, it's not just about sanctions or sort of soft power, but a real hot war, you know, as the D.C. people like to call it. Like there are people actually fighting and dying in this war. And it's a civil war between Ukrainians. So there's actually you're actually having Ukrainians kill other Ukrainians. And so you have the civil war with sort of Russia and the West and NATO backing different sides of the civil war, but it is, is ultimately a civil war. And so uh, Christian Freeland is very much a partner in that uh, worldview, is very much supportive of that worldview. And Canada is, is, is very much involved in this hot proxy war with Russia. This U.S. strategy of uh, using Ukraine against then the Soviet Union, I mean, this has long roots, right? The use of Ukraine as an anti-Russian battering ram. Yeah, Ukraine has always been seen as a as a weak spot, the weak underbelly of first the Soviet Union and now Russia. And uh, nationalism has always been seen as a, a tool to destabilize Ukraine. First under the Soviet Union, the idea was to use nationalist movements in Ukraine that was very strong in that country um, to inject nationalist ideology and to use these groups in order to destabilize uh, that, that region and to peel it away from the sort of Soviet international sphere, right? And that has continued into the current day after the end of the Cold War, where America has continues to support nationalist groups and uh, neo-fascist people like uh, Christian Freeland's grandfather, Michael Chomak, who would, ra- who would run newspapers, right? Who would administer, who would help the Nazi Germany run um, the occupation. Uh, and so they ended up in, in Western Europe after the war, and they became dispersed all over Europe and uh, America and Canada. So Britain took a bunch of, a bunch of uh, Ukrainian Nazi collaborators. Uh, Canada took a bunch of Ukrainian Nazi collaborators. America took a bunch of Ukrainian Nazi collaborators. Some of them stayed in Germany. Some of them stayed in Italy. So there's this sort of... Oh, oh, diaspora that emerged after World War II, a Ukrainian nationalist or Ukrainian fascist diaspora that emerged after World War II. And they had began to work very closely with Western intelligence agencies, with German intelligence agencies, with the CIA, with British intelligence agencies as a way of, they were, they were useful to the West because they were seen as, um, they had active contacts with Ukrainians in Soviet Ukraine. They uh, were uh, parachuted into Soviet Ukraine on these sort of paramilitary raids on Soviet Ukraine, and oh, they were parachuted into the, into Soviet Ukraine to try to get the local population to rise up against their Soviet overlords and to create this insurgency from within. They were used for intelligence gathering. They were used to to uh, basically to out uh, what Soviet spies that were trying to infiltrate uh, American um, um, or, or that, that were trying to infiltrate these exile groups, uh, these emigre exile groups. So there were an aspect of American and Western intelligence agencies after the after the war. And so there's a direct connection um, organizationally and even, you know, blood, by bloodline, uh, there is a direct correlation between or direct connection between the groups that are operating today in Ukraine, uh, the nationalist groups and the groups that were operating in, the, in Ukraine during World War Two and right, uh, right before World War Two. Okay, and finally, this um, this kind of formation is still very present in fairly significant numbers in the Ukraine government today, right? Well, the Ukrainian nationalist right is the most organized and the most powerful political movement in Ukraine today. There's really no left to speak of. There's really no progressivism to speak of. There is really no ideology there that ha- that can organize people so well. And so they're extremely useful to uh, they're extremely useful in Ukrainian domestic politics because they can be mobilized for all sorts of reasons to oppose policies to to support policies. They play a huge role in Ukrainian domestic politics. I mean, most of the most of the demonstrations that you see today opposing something or or, or, or supporting something come from the far right. They're the only ones who can really bring people out in huge numbers. And in an organized manner. So yeah, the Ukrainian right is the most powerful um, 
political force in Ukraine. I mean, and to the point where they're extremely integrated with the US, with the Ukrainian government. Uh, for instance, a, a, a what started out as a paramilitary group that was that fought uh, in that started fighting 2014 when the civil war broke out in eastern Ukraine called the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion started out as a private, non-government paramilitary group. It was then absorbed into the government and absorbed into the official military structure of the government. And this, uh, and it's very new, the Azov Battalion is essentially a neo-Nazi battalion. Their, their official logo is, is, a kind of, is, a, is a kind of a swastika, a stylized swastika. The leaders of that movement openly espouse uh, fascist ideology and, and, and praise uh, Nazi ideology. And this is now part of the government, part of the official military structure of the Ukrainian government. And this neo-Nazi battalion then spawned its own political wing and a political party that uh, that actually took part in the elections, and so uh, and is, is 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 a recognized political party. So, um, yeah, the far right is doesn't represent Ukraine completely, of course, and it's actually a, a, a minority. It doesn't hold sway over the majority of the Ukrainian population. But it is the most organized political force in Ukraine today, no doubt. That was Yasha Levine. You can find his email report, Immigrants as a Weapon, at yasha.substack.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Behold them seated in their glory, the kings of mine and rail and soil. What That was some of the Internationale, performed by Robert Wyatt from 1982. Next, technology, about which good thinking from the left is rare. Fortunately, we now have Lizzie O'Shea. Her book, Future Histories, came out last May, but she only recently passed through New York on a publicity tour. Here she is to talk about surveillance today and what the Paris Commune can teach us about shaping a digital world that will help us flourish. Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer, broadcaster, and writer based in Australia. Lizzie O'Shea. We're all very uh, conscious of surveillance these days. And then you know, there's this Chinese example the American media love to point to, where there are cameras everywhere and they re- recognize your face. And it's very state-centered. We certainly have a state-centered surveillance system here, too, but it's very much more uh, on the commercial side, or so it seems. How do they compare? Like, What do you think of the, you know, this, this Chinese model of constant surveillance by the state versus the American one of constant surveillance by Google? Well, I think in a lot of ways they're very similar. Uh, and in fact, the Chinese are perhaps better at doing it than the Americans. Um, because even though Google obviously surveils us as well as many other private entities, there's a cooperative relationship with the state where they work together when they need to. Uh, there's an exchange of information. There's a revolving door between the administrations that go through Washington and private companies. So you know, companies like Palantir build their profitability on being able to draw conclusions from multiple different data sets, both private and public. We don't really even know fully what Palantir does, do we? No. I mean, we know they sell a couple of different products and we know what kinds of um, who, what kinds of people they sell it to, so in police departments, among other things, and 
various um, state departments. We also know that people get sick of their products sometimes and get rid of it as well. So they're, they're extremely closely held and uh, information about the company is scarce and I don't think they'll ever go public, partly because what, I think what they do is very controversial. Uh, it's designed, uh, they're designing a way in which you can have a, a good map of social webs that uh, allow you to better manage social division, to better police people and surveil them uh, and to make use of the opportunities of the digital age where huge amounts of data are available but in quite disparate sets and bringing that together is their skill set. So they're kind of like a shadowy version of Google doing the same thing. So how would and you... financed by the CIA's venture capital arm. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, yeah, that's where they got their seed funding. Um, and so the idea, I think, that many um, American commentators sometimes suggest that there's this serious distinction between uh, an American liberal democracy and the Chinese surveillance state in all its evil and horror, uh, I think is sometimes illusory. There's actually a lot more in common than there is to distinguish the two. There's, of course, things that we need to defend about a liberal democracy and the idea of rights that exist in uh, American society, which is very important to protect. Uh, and the same thing does not exist in China, I don't think, to any uh, anywhere near the same degree. But I think it's also a mistake to therefore assume that what um, leaders in the West generally, but particularly in the United States, are doing is, no, is not uh, anywhere near as serious as what's happening in China, because I think it is. But we give up our uh, information voluntarily to mm. Mark Zuckerberg and all, right? Mm. Um, does, does that change the nature of the transaction? Yeah, well, this is a common justification for the oppressive way in which surveillance capitalism is unfolding, that it's by consent. And I think this is really where um, modern ideas of the contract start to break down, because I don't think many people could possibly read or come to terms with terms of service um, yeah, I, let me ask you as your, your lawyer person yeah. to analyze this. Can one enter into a contract knowledgeably? I mean, do we really know what we're giving up? The terms and conditions are 40 pages long. Nobody ever reads them. Yeah. But that, that is nonetheless a binding contract. That's correct. Uh, and so it is binding, but... You know, the law is not, it's not the case that the law is always just accepted, that uh, difference in power relations um, is immediately resolved once you've signed the agreement, that in fact, sometimes they do start to look behind uh, some of these arrangements and have set aside contracts, but it's very rare. Courts are generally there to preserve and uphold the institution of contracts. It's the foundation upon which modern market economies are based. So uh, there's a general hesitancy to do that. And that means, of course, that the immense power difference between someone like Mark's Zuckerberg and you or me is is not really read into the context of this contract. One of the ways I think it's really obvious that a contractual understanding of privacy is flawed uh, is to think about lookalike audiences. So you, you might be someone who has never shared anything on any major social media platform. <laughs> that's, no, that's not <laughs> that's me. That's not you. <laughs> Let's think about the imaginary person who that is, the ungoogleable man. And um, it's possible then that uh, these companies, because they know so much about uh, others who do, can draw conclusions about you based on very limited demographic information because they might know where you live and your gender and, um, you know, even th those kinds of small details can help them build a picture of you uh, through your associations, through other things, even if you personally haven't shared that information, that through the mapping that is done by every, thanks to everybody else sharing their data, that um, the individual can have conclusions drawn about them, even if they've never done the sharing themselves. So the idea that privacy is something that you can individually consent to when in fact your consent may have implications for many others, I think is a mistake, um, let alone the idea that you're somehow doing it in, in an informed way. I mean, that's partly what I think um, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe was trying to do, was trying to give people more rights in a contractual relationship with uh, companies over privacy. But I think that whole... I just like, experienced that as a lot of annoying disclosures yeah, I, I think had to check, right? Exactly. I'm not sure it really works because the idea that we can contract around our privacy, I think, is fundamentally flawed now. So we probably need to start thinking much more about different ways in which we could manage or regulate that data. So I, you know, I'm a lawyer. So when someone comes and gives me information, uh, it's protected by privilege and I have to treat it as a fiduciary. I have to treat it with extreme care. I can't sell it on to other people to make money. I would lose my practicing certificate and I, it would be considered unethical. Ethical. And the same is true of doctors. You can't, um, you're not supposed to go on and sell information about your pa patients, even if it's extremely valuable. So I think there's an argument that you could apply the same rules, for example, to companies who collect 
even more uh, anodyne kinds of data about you to hold it on trust for you to not be able to profit from it and and it is I think it's very possible to regulate to get rid of the secondary data market because they don't contribute much to society they make a huge amount of money uh, and uh, I don't think people think that it's actually fair or it's within their reasonable expectation of privacy to allow that economy to exist so these kinds of proposals I think need to be given more airtime and discussed in greater detail. There's a lot of anxiety around Cambridge Analytica after the 2006 presidential campaign. And uh, what was it, Apply Special Sauce, whatever that early version of their, their work. I, I ran my stuff through it, and it came up with preposterous conjectures about who I was and what I believed. Mm. How accurate is this stuff? Can we, do they really know <clears throat> what's inside us and what we think and what we do? Yeah, I'm not surprised that the that the picture that they painted of you is not accurate because I think sometimes we can invest too much energy in assuming that um, you know that playing the game of digital analytics can win. Um, political elections because of course there's other dynamics going on. Politics is much more complicated than just being able to game a social media algorithm and pull out voters and target them. Uh, so I, I think we can invest too much in assuming that um, dominance of these kinds of digital platforms can give rise to political um, dominance because, or yeah, political success because there's lots of ways in which in the 2016 election went wrong that uh, don't relate to technology. Um, having said that I think they're experimenting and they're only going to get better at it. So uh, there's lots of ways in which we don't know that they're, you know, we don't know how they're operating and there's lots of ways in which they're building machines which they may not be able to control. And I don't mean that in like they're, you know, kind of Elon Musk robots are going to kill us. I more mean that they can be using technology where it's not clear what the biases are. Zainab Tafici talks about like a, you know, as an example of this, uh, building a recruitment algorithm to look for potential job um, people who fit job candidates and eventually building a machine that might not just discriminate against who might be a good performer in the job, but might also start to discriminate on things that you don't know, not like qualifications, but say a presumption that um, this person based on their data might end up with a mental illness in, in two years time that takes them out of the workforce. Or this person might end up um, building a union in their workplace and um, the machines kind of detected or the algorithms detected that that's a quality that the workplace does not want to possess, but is maybe not immediately obvious to the person person who's building it. And I think there's similar things we can see today where people are being experimented on with this kind of technology. Well, people are giving up their genetic information at 23andMe. And I know. That's a little scary to me. Yeah, well, I, and the fact that they found the, the um, serial killer in California using that data, I think does suggest... But when you mention this job application, AI stuff, I mean, yeah, they can look up your genetic course. history, and a lot of that is pseudoscience, but that doesn't mean they're not going to use it. No, it doesn't mean they don't have it forever. Um, so, of course, there, there's a um, huge, enormous problem with what people do with very personal information that can't be changed. It's not like a password that you can change. This is your genetic information. I mean, biometrics of your face is the same, I think. For, it's got all sorts of very serious implications for surveillance and other, other applications, not just for the use of that data in the particular program that they're running. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very troubling that... Um, People think it's okay to in, um, to give companies this information, but it's also very troubling that they're not regulated in any meaningful way, and that they're able to use this stuff with abandon. Uh, and the implications for that over the long term are deeply troubling. Well, let's talk utopianism a bit. Um, the boom of the late '90s, when the internet got commercialized, and it was the dot-com era and everything. There was an awful lot of techno-optimism then. It was going to lead to peace, love, and understanding, and the end of the business cycle, but also flatter hierarchies, more fun at work. There was an exuberance to it then, but it seems largely to have disappeared. Hmm. The utopians of today are, uh, you know, the, uh, the Peter Thiels who want to create their offshore <laughs> libertarian utopias. What about this, the, the techno-utopia? You start with, you know, a history of, of techno-utopianism. It's an old story. Um, how pervasive is it and how afraid of it should we be? Well, I, I think it's mm, the sheen has only come off this relatively recently, I would argue. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Vanity Fair were writing puff pieces about Mark Zuckerberg with the hope that he might run for president. I mean, he was going on that tour around the country to all 50 states to talk to everyday people because apparently he doesn't encounter them in his own life normally. Uh, and this looked a lot like a pseudo-presidential campaign that was at its beginning. And I think it's remarkable how much now he is reviled throughout large sections of society and how mainstream lawmakers 
also from both sides of the divide like to give him a kick when they feel like something's going wrong for them. Uh, I think that's a huge, significant change since 2016. I mean, 2016, he held no responsibility. For, we didn't think his platform had any responsibility for polarisation in politics. Uh, and his workers told him otherwise. And, and gradually now that's changed and they've had this moment of reflection. So what, what I'm getting at, I suppose, is that for a very long time, it was very easy to think of Silicon Valley as this upbeat, self-actualizing version of capitalism that was going to bring the United States out of the misery of deindustrialization and um, and the loss of manufacturing jobs. And it was it was companies that were extremely profitable, that were solving the world's problems, that with enough data and the right algorithms, they could fix lots of political problems that were otherwise quite intractable. And now it's emerging that quite the opposite. They're not equipped to do that at all. And they, um, they don't have the skills that they're not regulated properly either. So what I think is has um, gone on is this idea that technocrats should be running the world for us, whether that's in um, politics or in, in relation to other kinds of social policy questions, getting getting their technocrats in will fix it. And we're now seeing an era in which that's no longer the case. And what- well, That notion of politics being a problem has a long history in techno-utopian yeah. literature, right? In the proper world, politics would disappear and everything would just be a matter of administration by experts. Exactly. And that was part of the idea in the book is to look back at previous movements of technological utopians to map that out and how they, it's a similar, it's a, it's happened in similar ways in the past. And the idea of of that particular um, part of my writing was to look at how it was set in very sharp contrast to um, other kinds of movements for social change. And the one that I talk about is the Paris Commune. So an example of bottom-up democracy, very um, organic from working people and poor people in Paris. I mean, it ultimately was crushed, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. But uh, the idea was that techno-utopianism really came out of and was a response to other um, those kinds of applied versions of democracy to say that that doesn't work. I'm speaking with Lizzie O'Shea, author of Future Histories from Verso. But you contrast Edward Bellamy and uh, uh, William Morris, right? Yeah. So what about them? Well, William Morris was, uh, uh, I mean, the British socialist and um, great and also known for designing beautiful soft furnishings that feature in many British middle class homes. But um, he's, I think he's a very interesting character from history, but he was a great defender of the legacy of the Paris Commune and argued that um, it was an important lesson for to be applied in future by social movements. And he has a dialogue with Edward Bellamy, the writer of the very popular text techno-utopian novel uh, called Looking Backward um, and basically accuses him of having no imagination, of trying to circumvent these messy problems of politics and and trying to um, avoid dealing with the rabble who might want a different version of society and allowing them the space to explore that and instead looking at technical solutions to these problems. Investment in technology is the answer rather than giving everyday people power. And um, that's a, I think it's a dynamic that's coming out today. Like, a, you know, if you compare the administration of someone like Barack Obama, who is extremely technocratically focused, very much committed to that kind of technical form of government. Explicitly so, right? He, Indeed. You have a quote from him, he said, he likes that kind of government. Yeah, that's how he identifies. And now we're looking at um, potential presidential election where there's two people who are really populists, quite a, um, a different approach to political power. And I feel like the, the, the techno-utopians and the technocrats, their time's coming to an end. And, you know, I think Pete Buttigieg is perhaps a good example of that, someone who has all the right credentials if it was the, if it was the Obama administration, you know, the t- his time at the consultancy, his time as, you know, all, um, coming through... Uh, as a kind of member of the elite being groomed for that. And now he sort of feels completely out of place in the current... Well, he seems to lack a heart or a soul. Yeah, well, that's true too. <laughs> yeah. But maybe that's also what's happened with lots of yeah. techno-utopians. They like to appoint themselves as in charge and, and the ones who, are, who, who will facilitate um, the making of a better society on all of our behalf. And uh, I think most people are sick of that. They've seen the enormous problems that have happened when you leave power in the hands of a small few who don't take the time or the responsibility that comes with that to do it well and yeah I'm I for one am pleased that that period seems to be more that coming to an end and that those those ideas seem to be losing sway and I just want to make sure that this is the moment in which we argue for greater democracy rather than a reversion to authoritarianism which I think is a real question. The techno-utopians and dystopians often share a common belief that the robots are coming Mm. and they're going to take your job and automation is going to change everything. I'm skeptical about that Mm. but leave that aside, both embrace, uh, or uh, we get these Silicon Valley people embracing the idea of a universal basic income. Yeah. And also um, some sort of end of work people 
broadly on the political left, also embracing that. You also write about that and the job guarantee. Compare those two. What, what do you think about the UBI versus job guarantee? Well, I, it's interesting to observe because I, I don't think any of them are, are perfect or and I don't think all any of them are fatally flawed, to be honest, but I think it's worth thinking through their various implications. And it's interesting to watch on the left because there seems to be people who are very committed to one or the other, um, which I think is perhaps problematic. Uh, universal basic income, obviously, um, the, the, the provision of a specific amount of money to everybody without qualification. There's obviously serious implications with that in terms of um, the potential to preserve the system as it is uh, and just allow um, it to function and, and people to have a a certain baseline living standard without tinkering or without... It's a consumerist model. That's right. However, the idea that you can access welfare without judgment, without qualification, I think is a very good one. Uh, And the bureaucracy that comes around welfare distribution is deeply dehumanising and it has all sorts of potential to be pulled apart and and, um, degraded over time with effective uh, politicians. So I I like the idea of uh, an absence of qualification and bureaucracy for welfare and an absence of stigma. Um, Of course, a universal job guarantee offers um, something important in that it allows people to have um, a sense of dignity at work and a contribution to society. It also allows society to be arranged slightly differently. You can have production that is centrally administered that focuses on things like greening the economy rather than just relying on the market to create these jobs. But I also think you know, in Australia, we have a program called Work for the Doll, which looks a lot like a universal job guarantee. You get put into a job uh, and it becomes the qualification. Workfare, we call it. Exactly. Here, right? yeah. So these things are not without precedent and they're not very good. You know, there's a lack of dignity in that work. And the people who talk about dignity at work, sometimes I don't think have worked jobs that are miserable because not all jobs do have dignity. And so I'm very nervous about handing a huge amount of power to the government to create a system of jobs that may be, you know, an excuse for not um, addressing other inequalities, for uh, putting people into positions of exploitation. Um, the other one that I think is worth thinking about is universal basic services, which is the provision of a bunch of basic services services for free without qualification, which I think is a good one. So universal health care. Which is decommodifies. Yeah, which I think has got a lot of benefits to it. So, um, you know, I think like, for example, access to the internet the um, should be a universal basic service that is free. Um, that would be a good, a good step forward for many people. It would um, close the digital divide. I think it would take a huge step in that direction. Um, it would allow people to participate in political life and social life in ways that maybe aren't currently possible. So there's lots of options, I think, that are worth looking at in this context. And I'm a bit nervous about what I see on the left in terms of people becoming entrenched in a particular position without necessarily uh, recognising the implications of that. But I am glad that we're starting to have a conversation about how government can fix the problems of the market, because that's, I think, where the left needs to be in terms of discussing these problems. I don't think anyone now thinks that the market can solve the kind of enormous problems that are facing humanity. So let's talk about how we make government accountable, um, how we redistribute wealth effectively, how we make sure that the poor are not left behind in the, in the system as it changes. Uh, and that's, that's our job, I think, and it's a very important one. Yeah, well, the, uh, the Silicon Valley guys don't like to think about politics, but what you're talking about requires a lot of politics. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that, well, can I just say, though, I think they do like to think about politics. One of the things when I was writing this book that gave me a deep um, alarm was reading a presentation given by Ben Horowitz, where he talks about so the venture, the venture capitalist. Sorry, I should say that. Horowitz. Yeah. Yep, and A sixteen Z, right? Yeah, A sixteen Z, exactly. <laughs> he talks about uh, how he, one of his great heroes from history was Toussaint Louverture, the uh, re- revolutionary leader in Haiti. Um, because he says it's the only successful slave revolt in history. And what he does in his presentation is draws a line between that revolutionary moment and CEOs and entrepreneurs of today and claims that heritage and says, we can transform culture if we're revolutionary in our mindset and that capitalism is the system that's revolutionary. And when I read that, I think, how is it possible that a radical revolutionary leader who, you know, the Haitian Revolution is a fascinating moment. It's about uh, expanding the idea of the French Revolution to racial questions in the colonies. It has this enormous implication, I think, globally for how you define citizenship. There's lots of ways in which it was successful and unsuccessful. It's something that the left, I think, needs to come to terms with. It's part of the left's history because that's what the left is interested in, radical revolutionary moments. And yet here's a venture capitalist claiming it as their own. I think they're, the, the elite of today like to make out politics as not something that they're interested in. And yet it's 
deeply saturated in everything they do. They are very committed to preserving a form of capitalism, a form of deregulated or regulated according to their own design version of what they do. And if we allow them to write history for us, that's the kind of history we'll get. Uh, and that's my motivation for doing this kind of work to, to say, well, there's a, a history that we can identify with that that gives us uh, confidence and context to have discussions about technology today that might otherwise seem very specific and um, specific to computer science, when in fact it's not. It's 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 very much a political question. So things like encryption or um, net neutrality or any of the of these other kind of policy issues, like how we build the internet backbone and who looks after it, these are all political questions, not just technical ones, and we need people who've got a sense of history and an understanding of politics to contribute so that the only the people who are making, who are making these decisions are not the elite. Uh, Horowitz blocked me on Twitter. I can't, oh, I can't remember what my offense was. Devastating. Because yeah. he does put out some good ones. Yeah. They all, they've, they've got, there's a whole litany of terrible tweets from VCs. I would like an account that just uh, <laughs> does that because it collects them into one spot. And it's, yeah, it's very satisfying. A good, a, a good act of curation. Yes. Now you evoke the idea of a digital commons. Mm. What would that look like? Um, I think that could look like many things. There's lots of possibilities and it sort of depends what kind of field you're looking at. I mean, the obvious one that people talk about all the time is something like Wikipedia, which is a commons, it's a a common resource, it's not owned by anybody, it's contributed to by many people. But you could sort of see how something like that could be possible with um, freely available libraries. So like one of the things I think that's deeply worrying is that Google's got this project of scanning every book, but then Google owns the books, you know, or they they can do what they like with that. Imagine if that was more freely available. And there are projects that do that. But the fact that you can now transfer cultural products without any consequences cost-free is surely one of the great liberating forces of the digital age. Imagine if all this stuff was freely available. And of course there's a question then what do you do about creators and how you make sure Yeah, it's they... also driven down the compensation of writers and artists close exactly. to zero. Yeah, but then I think that's a, that's a solvable problem too. Like we could find ways to fund that. I don't think the market actually funds artists very or cultural producers very well either because there's a tiny elite that make a lot and many who struggle in obscurity. So I think that's a genuine question we need to resolve, but I think we also need to make the potential of the way in which we can access culture in virtually frictionlessly, um, and that should be a good thing. That should be something that everybody's allowed to do to be able to learn and all those kinds of things. And then there's other kinds of projects I think we could do to, to build commonses in other ways. So things like medical data where you can contribute voluntarily rather than it's siphoned off from you or um, other kinds of um, similar projects. I think there's lots of ways in which, provided the confidence is there and it's publicly managed and owned in an accountable way, that you could then share that resource so that you didn't have multiple drug companies, for example, trying to race to market with a particular product, uh, but instead sharing their knowledge in a collaborative way so you don't get the, the duplication of that kind of work in the marketplace. So I think there's other things like that but you do that, that are possible but really require that there be accountability, strict rules in place and opposition to monetizing that data, um, rather sharing it instead. Earlier when I mentioned that, that techno-utopianism of the late 90s, um, there was a, a portion of it which I think had a real genuine utopian content and wasn't just pure um, ideology. Uh, And that was uh, the idea that somehow people could organize themselves, Mm. could have a self-organized society and a less hierarchical society. You bring up the example of the Paris Commune. Is there a way to translate that kind of thinking, that kind of model into the digital realm? Well, look, I would like to see more of it. And thinking it through in this moment, one example that comes to mind, I suppose, is something like the Google walkout around payments made to Google executives who were accused of sexual harassment. Uh, There were many thousands of Google workers who participated. They organized that through the company's tools. You know, they used those tools for um, tools of organization that would otherwise have been used for kind of probably agile forms of management. So there's ways in which the modern approach to management in technology companies particularly, I think, is quite flattened and can be repurposed and reused to build power among workers, which is one example, a micro example of what you're talking about. But of course, there's there's many other ways in the real world that that could be true. There's no reason why you couldn't have, I think, community-owned platform cooperatives for a variety of services. 
Um, Uber, you may have seen, it's just uh, making this move to become an app for everyday life. Or I, I can't quite remember the, the phrase that he uses, but he talks about basically uh, their pivot now is not away from just ride sharing towards lots of other things that, that you can centrally access through the Uber app. Um, you know, food delivery being one, but lots of other things as well. And I, I wonder whether something like that could be publicly owned. The thing that's valuable there is... Or a cooperative of cab drivers. Exactly. Yeah. Very similar kinds of things that can be... Um, you could use that technology for a, a big national kind of project for the delivery of those kinds of services and very micro ones at a community level for the same thing. And uh, the technology exists and the thing that makes those companies valuable is not even really the technology that they've written, but probably the network effects of having so many users that they can access. So why couldn't that be replicated in community settings? Um, why shouldn't we start to think about how we could socialise some of these um, businesses and look at how they could be owned in some form in a public way or by people who use it? Uh, and there could be other kind of state incentives to create similar ones or you know investment in these kinds of projects. But there's, there's an, uh, many ways in which I think things that we rely on now that are, um, have been built by technology companies, there's no reason why they couldn't be owned by the public. And that's what I think we should start to think about more because they've got great potential for organising and they already do. Lots of people are already politically organised in places like Facebook. There's no doubt about it. So let's do, I think we should find ways to do that without Mark Zuckerberg looking over our shoulder all the time. That was Lizzie O'Shea, a writer, lawyer, which she asked me not to hold against her, and I don't, and broadcaster based in Australia. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of ancient digital cultural history, The Age of Information by Momus from 1997. Paranoia is simply a word for seeing things as they are. Till next week, bye. This is a public service announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now entering the Age of Information. It's perfectly safe if we all take a few Basic precautions, may I make some observations? Axiom 1, for the world we've become, your reputation used to depend on what you concealed. Now it depends on what you reveal. The age of secretive mandarins who creep on hills of tact is dead. We're all players now in the great game of fact instead. So since you can't keep your cards to your chest I'd suggest you think a few moves ahead As one does when playing a game of chess Axiom 2 To make the world new Paranoia is simply a word For seeing things as they are Act as you wish to be seen to act Or leave for some other star